0: Before I get started with the message, I want to say hello to everybody in the North Auditorium. I've been told the North Auditorium is full, and then there are some who are in overflow today. Thank you so much for all you do to attend New Spring. Appreciate We just opened the North Auditorium last week, and so uh, I, I will say this. If you'll keep coming, we'll keep making space somehow. So thank you so much for being here. Um, I heard a story sometime back of a little kid who grew up in a church differently, from New, different, very different from New Spring. I know because of some of the things he said. His, his parents told him they were going to go to church on Easter, and, and that's the only time they ever went to church. And so they said to him, you need to get ready for church. And he said, I don't want to go to church for three reasons. He said, the first reason is you make me dress up. So I know that's why it's not like New Spring. Uh, And then the second thing, they clearly didn't have a a kid's world like we do because he said, I have to go sit in with all the adults and I have to sit up straight and be quiet. I don't understand anything that's going on. And then he said, the third reason I don't want to go is they tell the same story every year. (laughs) And uh, I got to admit, that last part's true. (laughs) Do 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 you ever meet somebody who every time you meet them, they have the same story to tell? You know, first time you hear it, you know, the second time you hear it, and it's like, oh, okay, maybe I missed some details. But after a while, it's like you avoid, avoid them. I grew up in a small church. My dad was a pastor. And there was an elderly gentleman in our church who was a widower. And he found out where we lived. And so he just started coming over to our house. And every time he would come over to our house, he would tell us his life story. And honestly, the first couple times, it was kind of interesting. But then he came over, and he told it, and he told it, and he told it. By the time I became a teenager and got a car, if I saw his car coming, I'd jump in my car and leave. <laughs> And then years after Mary Allison, and I got married, and we were going over to my parents' house and we saw his car in the driveway, we just kept right on going. That'll give you some idea how, how many years he came over to my mom and dad's house and told the same story. But it is the same story that we tell every year. Let me ask you a question. What if it was the greatest story in history? What if it was the biggest headline of all time? And then let me, let me go a little bit more personal. Suppose it was the biggest story in your life personally. Well, if it was, of course, it would, it would bear the repetition that we have every Easter and as we have even in our church on a weekly basis. So let's talk about it. I mean, the first thing that we need to ask is, is the story true? I mean, I grew up reading fairy tales. I grew up with, you know, mythology in school and, and all the stuff like that. And, and we all know that religions kind of make up tales. So let's ask the question, is it, is it true? Did Jesus really come back to life? a man come out of his grave under his own power? Well, here's the thing. If, you're into, if you like to watch CSI or shows like that, you'll, you'll like this. The Bible treats the resurrection of Jesus Christ like a forensic investigation. Last week, I did a talk called I Believe in the Crucifixion. We're closing out a series called I Believe, and if this is your first time to be here, the other talks, they're on our website. But last week, I was sharing with our audience that I couldn't get away from two words, and we unpacked them last week, and those two words were Christ died. On their face, they sound simple, but they're very full of meaning, and if you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. But this week, as I got ready for the Easter message, there were four words that just kept playing over and over in my mind, and I couldn't get away from them. And I I want to take you to the verse that has these four words in it, and just to catch you up, it's the Sunday morning, and and the ladies are going out to the tomb of Jesus, and um, when they get there, the angel is there, and the angel has this to say to them, there is nothing to fear here. I know you're looking for Jesus the one they nailed to the cross, he is not here. Those are the words that just keep playing over and over in my mind. He is not here. He was here. Friday afternoon, he was there. We know the story. Jesus of Nazareth got on the wrong side of the powers that were and got crucified. They nailed his body to a tree. He hung there for six hours. The blood came out of his body When the Romans were not sure that the guys were dead yet, they did something that they did to hasten death. They would want to come by and break the legs of them so that they couldn't breathe anymore. But they came by Jesus and they found out he was already dead. And the Roman soldier just to make sure threw a spear at his side. And out came what appeared to be blood and water, which was the serum that just reflected that his heart burst. He was dead. Now, I know that you guys are headed for Easter lunch pretty quickly, so I'm going to be as genteel as I possibly can about this. (laughs) You see, when they buried Jesus after crucifixion, that was an anomaly. It was an aberration of the first order. Because see, back in those days, Rome, when they crucified somebody, they were trying to make an example. So they left their bodies hanging on the cross until they rotted or the animals came to get them. But there were a couple of guys who liked Jesus whose names were Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And they were politicians. They were, they were, well, Nicodemus was a religious leader. Joseph, was a, it was a, he was a senator. But they went to Pilate. And having some standing, they said to Pilate, we would like to have the body of Jesus because we want to take it and give it a dignified burial. And and Pilate, the Roman governor, said, it's all right with me. So they took Jesus' body off the cross, and they took it to the tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had bought and built for himself. It was an above-ground tomb with a stone weighing somewhere between one and a half, two and a half tons. And we know that the stone, this is really a, a well-built tomb. The, the stone was polished, and this large stone, in order to get into place, had to be rolled downhill. You know? And if you, if you were, they wanted to make it as easy as they could, sealing it, and as difficult as they could to open it up. So they took Jesus' body, and Joseph, and this is, this is always funny to me. You know, Ladies, you know how men are just oblivious sometimes about certain things? They didn't know how to bury a body. They were were, like I said, they were politicians and religious leaders. And so they wrapped it in dried spices. 75 pounds worth. Now, here's the thing. It took about one pound of spices to bury a body. Five pounds if you were really important. Every once in a while there would be somebody of extreme importance, and they would, as a sign of their importance, they would they would bury with more spices. But the most we can ever read about in history is 40 pounds. Joseph and Nicodemus wrapped Jesus in 75 pounds of spices, dried spices. See, they didn't know you were supposed to use liquid. So if you're wondering why the ladies came to the tomb to really embalm the body of Jesus, they wanted to come do right with the guys messed up. And that's what all this was about. I just want you to know that because when they came there and the angel said, he is not here, he was there. And the women expected him to be there, but he was not there. You know, I, I love reading the answers that bureaucracies and bureaucrats send back to people. Some of them are funnier than Tim Hawkins. This is, this, is a literal, this is an actual one. This is from Greenville County, South Carolina, Department of Social Services. The letter was written to a dead person, and it said... To whom it may concern, your food stamps will be stopped effective immediately because we have received notice that you passed away. You may reapply (laughs) if there is a change in your circumstances. (laughs) Now, all I'm saying is there was a change in the circumstances because Friday afternoon, he was there Sunday morning. He was not there. You know, this is interesting. Historians are almost all agreed on that. Even hostile historians to Jesus Christ will admit to the fact that his tomb was empty. So he was not there. So here's our question. What happened to the body of Jesus Christ? I'll be the first to admit to you. If somebody moved his body, it's a hoax, and it's nothing more than a hoax. But let's be honest about the ramifications of if Jesus came out of the th- of the tomb under his own power. If Jesus Christ walked out of that tomb under his own power, then Christianity is different from every other religion. And let me go a step further, Christianity is not a religion. See, the concept of religion or the term religion is just a nomenclature. Human beings in order to classify thought, a lot of times will organize them according to nomenclatures. We have philosophy, we have the sciences, we have the arts. And religion. Religion is just the classification of human thoughts with the orientation of a higher power. But you know, when you look at religions, typically they're following a dead person, they have a book of rules. Well, here's the thing if Jesus Christ came out of his tomb under his own power, we're not people that are following a dead leader with a book of rules. We're following a living leader. We're not a religion, we're a movement. Better than that, we're a family. And that's what it means to be a Christian. Well, What happened? Well, the unofficial story was that somebody stole his body. I mean, let's just start there for a few moments. After, after Jesus was buried, the religious leaders go to the Roman governor, Pilate, and they were basically saying this to him. Look, sir, we understand you were trying to do a nasty thing, but you don't understand that you made things really bad for us by taking Jesus' body off the cross and allowing him to be buried. Because they said, you know, and well, let me read it to you. They said, sir, we just remembered that when the liar uh, announced while he was still alive after three days, I will be raised. We've got to get that tomb sealed until the third day. There's a good chance his disciples will come and steal the corpse and go around saying he's risen from the dead. Then we'll be worse off than before. And then after Jesus did rise from the grave, some of the Roman soldiers who freaked out over what happened, they realized they would be in deep trouble if they somehow allowed what was supposed to be guarded to get away. I was doing some research on this yesterday before I came to our our Saturday services, and I discovered that if a Roman soldier lost what he was supposed to be guarding, he didn't just get court-martialed. His superior officer would strip him of his clothes, put his clothes around his feet, take a lighted taper, light his clothes, and burn him alive in front of the rest of the troops as a disincentive to falling asleep when you're supposed to be guarding something. So when these guys lost Jesus... They freaked out, and they didn't go to Pilate because they knew that Pilate didn't give a rip about Jesus' body, but they went to the one group of people they knew could get them in a lot of trouble because they knew that the, the religious leaders had a dog in the race. And so they went to the religious leaders, and, and they said what happened. And so in verse 12, they called a meeting of the religious leaders and came up with a plan. They took a large sum of money, gave it to the soldiers, bribing them to say his disciples came in the night and stole the body while we were sleeping. They assured them, if the governor hears about you sleeping on duty, we'll make sure you don't get blamed. Soldiers took the bribe and did as they were told. But there's a problem with the unofficial story. Strike that. There is a plethora of problems with the unofficial story, starting with the fact that Jesus' enemies set up all the evidence necessary to prove that his body wasn't stolen. See, what happened was they went to Pilate and they said, you know, we, we want you to guard the tomb. So Pilate said, you will have a guard. Go ahead and secure it the best you can. So they went out and secured the tomb, sealing the stone and posting guards. So the idea, the story that his disciples came and stole the body has several holes in it. Let me walk you through real quickly what some of those holes are. First of all, you have a tomb guarded by some of the world's finest fighting men versus 11 frightened rabbits who didn't stare around to watch Jesus crucified who didn't want to risk their lives when Jesus was alive, and sure as popcorn, they're not going to risk their lives when he's dead. But that's just where it starts, because you understand that when Pilate said, you have a watch of soldiers, he was giving them a contingent of between 10 and 30 Roman soldiers. Now, just just looking at the scenario, I'm guessing that the number was 16. Because see what they did? They, They guarded in shifts of three to four hours. So if you can imagine Jesus' tomb, here's how it would have gone down. There would have been four awake soldiers standing at the mouth of the tomb, armed and guarding, while the others who were waiting to take their shift would have slept, and they slept like spokes on a wheel in front of the awake guards, so that if anybody tried to get to the guards who were armed and awake, they would have to step over the sleeping bodies of the soldiers who were there waiting for their shift. Now, there's another issue here, too, because... Um, The Bible says that this was sealed, and I don't want to take a whole lot of time because you didn't come here to hear a history lesson, but when when Rome sealed something like a tomb, here's how they would have sealed it. They would have stretched a cord all the way across the the mouth of the the tomb, across the stone. It would have been in wax or clay. It would have been affixed to the um, exterior wall on the right side. The cord would be stretched across the stone. There would be uh, wax or clay sealing the clay, uh, sealing the cord to the stone in the middle, and then there would be another seal on the other exterior wall. And that seal meant two things, and these, the first one is extremely important. Whenever Rome sealed something, it meant officially that the authority of Rome was behind it, that whatever that seal said was there was there. If a seal said there were 30 gallons there, there were 30 gallons there. If a seal said that there were 100 pounds there, there were 100 pounds there. If the seal said the body of Jesus Christ is inside this tomb, then I assure you, Rome would just not seal anything that they didn't check out. And the second thing it meant was that Rome was taking ownership. So now you got a seal tomb, and then beyond that, you have a stone that weighs between one and a half and two and a half tons. You're not going to make any quick moves with that kind of stone. And in order to get it out of the mouth of the tomb, we've already discovered, they would now have to roll the stone uphill. So think about this. For Jesus' frightened followers to steal the body of Jesus, they would have had to crawl over the 12 sleeping soldiers, overpower the four awake armed soldiers, find some way to roll back a two-ton stone, go inside, open up the body of Jesus from his... Wrappings, and let me just tell you this as soon as those 75 pounds of spices blew out of the mouth of the grave, I assure you that would have woke up everybody. <laughs> Grab the body of Jesus, get past the four awake soldiers, drag it over the sleeping soldiers, and go away with it. No. <laughs> you know, nobody believed the body it was stolen. Nobody, no one ever believed that. Not even Jesus' detractors. I mean, his followers didn't have the courage to do it. His enemies had no incentive to do it. And the Roman soldiers would have risked their lives if they allowed it to happen. You know what? I thought about this last summer. There was really only one plausible explanation for the removal of Jesus' body short of resurrection. And one of Jesus' followers came up with it. When Mary Magdalene went to the tomb that morning and Jesus was there, she thought he was the gardener. And she said, Sir, if you've taken him away, tell me where you put him and I will go get him. So, see, the idea of him being stolen, that's not feasible. But if, I guess technically you could say Mary's idea might have been feasible. Ah, but there are problems with that too. But see, the gardener's boss was Joseph of Arimathea, who wanted to give Jesus the tomb. Secondly, he was off duty. And he couldn't have moved the stone by himself. And thirdly, if he had showed up and said, oh, by the way, I moved the body of Jesus, that would have been the end of the whole thing. That would have been no Christianity. I've never said this until this year. But if Jesus had never appeared to anybody, just on the basic of the forensic circumstantial evidence, there would have only been one explanation for the empty tomb on Sunday morning. The man came back to life. It's as simple as that. Hey, listen, guys. I used to debate when I was in high school and college. I know the rules of evidence. I I know what I just proved. But I'm I'm just getting started because he did appear. In, In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is writing. This is like 30 years after Jesus rose from the grave. And Paul said he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Now, every once in a while, people think they see things. You know what I mean? So somebody could make the argument, well, Jesus' followers, they were so missing him that maybe they just hallucinated and thought they saw him. Well, 500 people don't have, they don't hallucinate at one time, unless you're from my generation and you're thinking about Woodstock. But they don't have the same hallucination. (laughs) And, and so this is 30 years after Jesus rose from the grave, and, and Paul is like saying, look, these people are still living. If you want to go check it out and get a firsthand evidence on the fact that he appeared after he rose from the grave, they're there. And then the Bible says in verse 7, he was seen by James. You know how that's significant? James is the half-brother of Jesus. And I don't know if, you, if you've ever thought about this or not, but the Bibles were real clear on something. When Jesus was doing his ministry, doing all the miracles, his brothers, they didn't believe in him. I mean, after all, how do you get your, you know, how do you get your brothers to believe that you're the son of God? You know, we've seen his socks. (laughs) And so James was the brother next oldest to Jesus, and he sure didn't believe. In fact, there's one point, I read this yesterday in the book of Mark, where Jesus was so busy and the crowds were so big that he didn't have time to eat, and his family actually performed an intervention. How cool is that? Your brother's the son of God, you go and perform an intervention. So all the time that Jesus was ministering, James, his brother, did not believe in him. When Jesus was on the cross, you remember the moment when he gave his mother Mary to the disciple John? You know why he did that? Because his brother James wasn't there. James was probably too ashamed that his older brother was getting himself crucified. But after Jesus rose from the grave, he appeared to James. That must have been some meeting. James was like, wow, I didn't realize my brother really is the son of God. And then Paul said, last of all, me. So, yeah, th- there's all the forensic evidence that says he rose from the grave. Then on top of that, you have eyewitness accounts. But I understand. I tend to be a little bit skeptical. Somebody could say, well, how do we know that through the years, you know, in 30, 40, 50, 70, 80, 100 years, how do you know that his followers didn't just fabricate the story? Well, in the first generation of his followers, the whole Thing of Christianity was built on the fact that the man came back to life so would you like to know what happened to the guys who were the pioneer generation who told that message James was the first to die he was beheaded like certain Christians are beheaded in our world today Peter was crucified upside down Andrew was beaten fastened to an x shaped cross it took him two days to die listen if you're hanging upside down on an x shaped cross we talked about crucifixion last week Listen, you'll say things didn't happen that did happen, and yet Andrew didn't buckle. Bartholomew preached in India till he was crucified upside down. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned to death in Jerusalem. Philip preached in eastern Turkey. He was crucified. Matthew was hacked to death with an ax in Ethiopia. Simon the Zealot was crucified in Britannia. Only one of the disciples died a natural death, and that was John, and that was after the Romans scalded him with boiling oil and sent him to work in the mines on the island of Patmos. See, here's the deal. We all know of religious zealots who die for a hoax, but not first generation. See, people that come along two or three hundred years later, they hear a story, they believe the story, they, they sacrifice themselves for a hoax, but not the first generation who have first hand evidence and will know for a fact whether or not it's true. Listen, guys, the evidence. Lay it down, just like you're turning over the cards. The evidence is strong. And the evidence is empirical. The evidence is unquestionable. The man came back to life. So there. It's the greatest headline in history. But you could say, well, Mark, you said earlier that it's the biggest thing that ever happened in my life. I mean, okay, let's say that the man came back to life. I mean, what... Arguably, let's say he did, and let's say that would be the biggest headline of all time. How is that salient to me in 2016, Kansas, America? To answer that question, let me read a verse that Paul wrote, and it's an interesting verse because Paul said, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, the following facts are true. He said, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who die believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope is in Christ only for this life, we're to be pitied more than anyone else in the world. Then he goes on to say, but he did rise. Well, when we think about what Paul said, if he didn't rise, the following facts are true. We look at those facts and we realize because Jesus did rise, our three biggest fears are overcome. Listen, guys, I'm not very smart and I don't know too many things, but I can tell you after pastoring 30 years, actually pastoring close to 40 years, I can't believe how old I'm getting. (laughs) I don't know many things, but I know people because I've talked to thousands of people. We humans fear three things more than anything else we fear that our life isn't going to matter. See, when you're when you're growing up, you know that there are minuses and pluses in life and you just want to come out ahead. But you have all these dreams and goals and ambitions and aspirations, you live a little while and you discover that there are a lot more minuses in life than you thought there were going to be. And let's just be honest, you're gonna leave in a minus. You're gonna die. And there are people that worry that my life is is not gonna matter. The second thing that we were afraid of, we're afraid of carrying the guilt that we know we have. And the third thing is we're afraid to die. Do you realize what Paul said? He said, if Jesus didn't come out of the grave, we have reason to fear all three things that a life doesn't matter, that our guilt is still with us. And if we die, that's the end. But he did rise. So let's walk through those three fears, and we'll close out this message. Here's the first thing. We know, first of all, that our life matters. Every time I do a funeral, I I'd almost always, I say every time, almost every time I do a funeral, I do a quote from C.S. Lewis. Because how many of us live our lives and we are disappointed with life? It's, it's not what we expect it to be. And we get to the end of it, and we wonder, well, is, does my life matter? But C.S. Lewis said this, the great intellectual. He said, if I have yearnings that are not fulfilled in this world, then perhaps I was made for another world. In the first, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, the Bible says we weren't designed for this world. This world is just the entry point. It's the next life that matters most. And your life does have meaning. And the things that you do that are good that nobody else sees, God sees. And so I just want you to understand that. You could be here today and you say, Mark, I just feel like I'm, total, I'm a total zero. <laughs> Jesus said God knows when a sparrow falls from the tree and he knows the declining numbers of hair on top of my head. He knows you. Number two, the Bible tells us that Jesus forgave us of our sins when He died. Every once in a while, someone will say, "Well, Mark, what's the distinction between Jesus dying on the cross and the effect of the resurrection?" This is a horrible illustration, but it's the best one I can come up with. Last week, I was eating with a friend of mine. He's a businessman here at NewSpring, and he's a genius in HR, and he's just been a great asset to me. But we've been friends for a long time. We sat down in this restaurant, and the lunch just, you know, went from one hour and beyond. Finally, I looked at my watch and realized I had to run to a meeting. So I called the server over and I said, "Uh, can we get the check? And he said, oh, he said, there were some people in here and they saw you here and they paid your check. Now think about that for a moment. There was a moment in the past when they paid my check, but then there was the moment when the server came and said, you're free to go. And guys, that's the difference between the cross and the resurrection. When Jesus died on the cross, the blood that came out of his body was a currency that paid for your sin, guilt, dysfunction, and all the problems in your life. But that was between Jesus and the Father. That payment was was private. But when Jesus walked out of his grave, it was like the server coming over to me and saying, someone has paid your ticket and you are free to go. That is the message of the resurrection. Your guilt is forgiven. And then there's death. My problem with death is it's so final. What is it that symbolizes death to you? I'm sure you've had some experience with it. I mean, for me, you know, finality is like watching KU last night. I was like, maybe, 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 maybe. And then it goes to zeros. It's like, okay, I guess I got to bed. It's over. Anybody know what this is? There's a tool for everything. It's a casket lock. There's a reason why you don't know what it is. (laughs) But I do. And I've spoken at over a thousand funerals. And so what happens, you know, if you've ever been to a funeral, there's a casket here and and everybody comes by and views. And then there's that moment when the family is gone and it's just myself standing at the head of the casket and funeral directors. And I'll watch them as they come. They tuck the... Fillowing in, they take the spray off the casket, close the lid, and then they put it in the casket lock. I thought about that. I called my buddy Bill Cozine, who owns Broadway Mortuary, and I said, hey, can I borrow a casket lock? For me, that, I guess I've just seen it so many times. that That's just a symbol of finality and death to me. My dad died a couple years ago. We had a service here at New Spring. But all my family's from South Texas. So we had another service at a church in Burnett, Texas. And I preached both services. And when I preached in South Texas, I stood at the head of the casket while everybody followed by. But a lot of the people were my family. And so there was a bigger and bigger crowd around me. And I didn't realize it, but they had closed the casket and locked it. And I hadn't really had a chance to go by by myself. So after everybody left, I said to the funeral director, hey, would you open it back up? I, You know, no, my dad's not here, but I, I just want to. One more time. And they opened the casket up for me. And I looked in the face of my dad for a few moments. And I said, okay, boys, you can, you can lock it up. The fact that Jesus came out of the grave means that when they do this on your casket, you won't be there. See, your death is the biggest hoax that you'll ever pull off. Because Jesus said, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. The part of you that's alert, that's alive, that's cognitive, that loves, that feels, that decides, that part of you is your soul. <laughs> I can say I see you today, but I don't see you. I see the body that you live in. And, yeah, they'll put that in a box someday. We'll have a service, and everybody will come by and say, don't she look natural? <laughs> and then we'll go somewhere and eat potato salad. Yeah, I mean, that's going to... That's how it works. But you know what? A wise person will be able to walk by your casket and say, she is not here. He is not here. See, when Jesus came out of the grave, my three biggest fears went away. I don't have to worry that my life isn't going to matter. I don't have to worry that I'm carrying my guilt. And beyond that, when I die, I won't really die. How do, you, how do you get in on that? Is it religion? Hey guys, this is my 31st year at New Spring. I love this church. I think like I love my life. I think it's the greatest church in the world. But New Spring Church can't get you out of Sedgwick County when you die. Hey, we saw baptism. Baptism is an awesome thing to do. Go public with your faith if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. But trust me, which tall water can't wash anybody's sins away? Listen, you want to get into heaven, you got to know the man. you got, you, got, you got to have a relationship. And how do you do that? Well, let me just read this to you. And this is the last thing I'll say because I'm a minute and 52 seconds in overtime. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God, and it's by confessing with your mouth that you're saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't it interesting? The most important thing in a relationship to God is that you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, and now you know why. You can do that. Hey, you can't be perfect. I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. But you can believe, couldn't you? Could you ask? I'll even help you. I'll pray a prayer that asks, and I'll pray it slowly so that these words aren't magic. You can say your own words if you want to. God's just looking for a big yes. But if you want to pray this prayer with me, I'll pray it slowly so you can decide if you want to own it and pray the prayer. You ready? Dear God, I am a sinner, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. Would you forgive me? And make me your child. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you just prayed, I have a gift I want to give it to you. I'll tell you about it in just a second. But next week we start the biggest series I've ever been part of. It's going to be awesome. The only two books in the Bible named after a woman. We're going to be looking at one of those books. I love the book of Ruth. It's about how people come out of nowhere and go to the top. Can't wait to get started next week. Uh, If you just pray with me to receive Christ, I have a gift I want to give you. It's a packet. It's got a DVD and a book I wrote. I have ADD, so I don't write long books. And then also a coupon for a new Bible. When you go out, you'll see guest services any place where there are balloons. In any of the entrances, just go up and say, I prayed with Mark. They won't hassle you. They just want to give you this. Happy Easter. God bless. See you next weekend.